Hey everyone, and welcome to the Red Mage. Today on the Red Mage, we will be diverting from the main content of Season 1. Designing an inclusive space for cosplay entrepreneurs, or as I call them, cosplayers, in order to support the Black Lives Matters movement. For today's episode, we are going to focus on three things. The first is what we are accountable for as world builders and designers and the tools that we have at our disposal. The second is looking at a historical case study pertaining to an actual space that has impacted the history of black Americans, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And the third and final item on our agenda is tying in these first two points in with what's going on now in the Black Lives Matters movement. Before moving forward, I want to make it clear that I'm an ally of the Black Lives Matters movement, and I cannot speak for the black community, and I do not represent any or groups or organizations in this episode. I will be approaching this conversation as an ally who is a designer that emphasizes in world building in order to speak up to the impact that design has on spaces that are actual and virtual on these communities and what we as designers and world builders can do to make a difference. And I will be using black because it's important to acknowledge trends in aggression and systematic injustices. When we look around at everything that exists in our world, all the interfaces, the products, man-made environments and systems, it's critical to know that design plays an important role in all these elements, but not all designs are inc include equity. The Black Lives Matters movement not only illuminates the social disparities between races, it highlights the systems that were designed to oppress and dehumanize people. As designers, using the world-building methodology, we have to hold ourselves accountable for making sure these systems are inclusive, accessible, and human-centric. The struggle for designers who are world builders is that once we create these worlds, we're no longer in control of that world. The inhabitants and the users of that world are the ones that direct the future of that world by implementing new rules, regulating accessibility, and acting as moderators of the space. So this sounds like a very daunting task for us world builders, but luckily we have a range of utilities that help us ensure the longevity of inclusion and accessibility for these worlds. So let's look at some of these utilities. The first one is creating a supportive ecosystem. This means that you're making sure that the world is integrated into a system that supports all aspects of the world that you make. The second one is selecting the right stakeholders. By partnering with stakeholders, we bring investments into the communal space that is supportive and empathetic with the needs of that community. And the last one is community immersion. This is done through field visits, spending time in that space that you're designing for, getting to know the people that you're designing for, bringing members of the community into your design process and letting them guide the journey. This not only humbles you, but it allows you to design for something that is relevant and necessary for the community. This is an integral part of the th design thinking process. And it's something that IDEO stresses for creating lasting, relevant designs. So now that we have a handful of these tools at our disposal, it's time to look at a historical case study. To do this, we're going to be looking at Tulsa, Oklahoma, the home of Black Wall Street. While it's painful to talk about, it's important to acknowledge in order to support our Black brothers and sisters who are suffering. I first want to acknowledge again that as an ally, I'm both an outsider of the black community and the Tulsa community. And with the pandemic and my finances being tight, 
I'm using remote research methods to talk about Black Wall Street. The sources I'm using are the National Museum of African American History and Culture, Juneteenth.com, USA Today, TulsaHistory.org, CNBC, Al Jazeera, JSTOR.org, National Museum of American History, Britannica.com, and the Black Wall Street Times. In case some of our listeners are unfamiliar with Tulsa's Black Wall Street, I'm going to provide you with a brief history of it. Black Wall Street is a community of black entrepreneurs and businesses that are owned by the community there in Greenwood District of Oklahoma. It came around to prominence in 1906 due to two visionaries, O.W. LeGurley and J.B. Stratford. These two entrepreneurs pioneered the space during an era of segregation to create a space for their community. The Black Wall Street Times states, it was a site of numerous businesses, including pharmacies, grocery stores, theaters, even two newspapers. It was home to 10,000 people, and Gurley made sure to sell to blacks only, wanting to create an ideal community. And again, this is during a time of segregation, where blacks were seen as unhuman, and they were separated. So creating this space was important. It was, well, not just important, it was absolutely necessary for this community to thrive. However, due to the economic success of the black community there, racial tensions grew. Lower income whites seethed at the success of these black business owners. And the inciting incident that took place was when the Tulsa Tribune reported that a black man, Dick Rowland, attempted to rape a white woman, Sarah Page. And this is taken from JSTOR.org where they're quoting the Tulsa Tribune, uh, taking out some articles from there. And after looking more into this, it seems that Sarah Page did not, only, did not only not press charges, she didn't really like try to go after Roland for anything. However, because of the racial tensions, a whole mob of the white community took to violence wanting to lynch Dick Roland. I am looking at this right now again as I'm kind of looking at my notes, and it's just so difficult to comprehend that you would hate someone so much that you would just bypass this entire system to prosecute someone in a just mean, give them an equal chance to state their stories and see what happened. But pressing forward, the black community members at that time went to defend Roland, arming themselves in fear of violence. Unfortunately, scuffles broke out, and a white person trying to take a gun from a black man ended up getting shot. Then all hell broke loose. Being forced to retreat to Greenwood, the black community did their best to hold off white attackers. They fortified the area of a 35-neighborhood block, but unfortunately, the black community was outnumbered, outgunned, and overwhelmed. As whites took in to shooting and attacking and transporting people out to concentration camps, they also rained death from the sky, as a series of survivors said, by dropping bombs and napalm from planes. An estimated 300 people were killed and over 800 were injured. Blacks captured by white aggressors were kept in concentration camps and their businesses and communities were reduced to ashes. The community was left with no hope hope and help in restoring their, their businesses by a greater Tulsa community. 
and black officers refused to assist blacks. They wouldn't arrest white aggressors. Quoting the Black Wall Street Times, the massacre was largely covered up for decades, and the severity was swept under the rug. Even most Tolsons were unaware that it happened until it finally garnered widespread attention when victims and their descendants asked to receive compensation for all that was lost. The battle for reparations was a long and unfruitful one. The state recognized what happened, but refused to pay. Instead, they received over 300 scholarships, memorials, and economic development in Greenwood. Just to give you some more insight on this, it was over $2 million that it would cost back then, which is probably a lot more now, to restore all those businesses due to jealousy. And I'm going to let that one sink in just for a little bit. $2 million, and you'll acknowledge what happened, but you won't pay. Black Wall Street would eventually return after various trials and tribulations that the community endured. In present day, it was once again the home of a handful of Black-owned businesses that are working to rebuild the community. While there are still many white supremacists in the surrounding area, Black Wall Street recently received support from allies who are helping support Black-owned businesses during the Black Lives Matters movement and on top of the COVID epidemic. If you're asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with world building and design? Then allow me to elaborate. It has everything to do with world building as a designer. Black Wall Street was a space for a community to live and prosper. During a time of segregation, Black Wall Street was an ecosystem that would allow blacks to reclaim their value, their humanity, and have a sense of space and place and belonging in the world that would otherwise devalue them. O.W. Gurley and J.B. Stratford may not have been traditional designers, but they were, in a sense, world builders. Gurley and Stratford understood that in order to elevate themselves and their community, they would need a space that did the following. Allow their community to have a place of feeling of belonging and agency. Allow the community to value themselves. Allow members of the community to feel safe. Embrace community efforts and innovations. The space of the community needed to be inhabited by all aspects of the community and all necessities needed to exist in that space. And the space was a result of community effort. While Black Wall Street is an example of an actual space created to sustain communities' needs, there's a major problem that has to be pointed out. The error wasn't on the black community that sought to create a space that created a sense of belonging. The fault falls on the racists that were motivated by this white supremacist mindset and jealousy and see that economic success of the black community. Jaser states that the massacre that happened in Tulsa was motivated by white animosity against economic progress. Whites of the era equated improvements in the wages and working conditions as communistic threats. In essence, whites were resentful that blacks no longer passively accepted second-class citizenship in their own homeland. For writers and world builders, this would be recognizable as a lore or history of a space, and that's very significant. For designers, understanding the history of these spaces is important as it addresses the core issues that need to be handled while designing for resilience which is designing for a space that endures and remains usable to future generations.
Now, let's look at how Black Wall Street is a part of a larger narrative that resonates with the Black Lives Matter movement today. Black Wall Street, according to USA Today, is an, in an interview with the commissioner uh, project manager, Jamal Jire, is in the Greenwood District. There are a few Black-owned businesses, but nothing like it was back in the day. With the main goals of the commission is not only to talk about African-American entrepreneurship, but actively seek programs and funding that bring these entrepreneurs to the Greenwood District by working alongside people in the community doing similar work. In reviving this space, it will be crucial for allies to support the efforts to build this space up for the Black community. As we learn from history, the history of Tulsa, Black Wall Street was massacred, massacred, due to conflicting narratives. One was a narrative of peace, and the other one was a narrative of racism and jealousy. And it remains intertwined with the larger narrative of the United States. With the approach of Juneteenth or June 19th, the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was made official in 1863, Donald Trump will be visiting Tulsa to start his campaign. An interview from Al Jazeera quotes, This isn't just a wink to white supremacists. He's throwing them a welcome home party. Al Jazeera's article went on to elaborate that Trump wants to rally there and obtain votes in a Trump-friendly state, while the black community members and its allies see it as a slap to the face. In this liminary period where we're fighting for justice and change, it's important that we as allies take an active role to prevent history from repeating itself by being part of the ecosystem that supports a communal space where the black community feels safe, establishes a sense of belonging, and receives equal and just treatment. And in order to do that, we have to allow the black community to have a voice and guide the role that we play, assisting them in creating that space. There are multiple avenues that allies can take to create these spaces, both virtual and actual, to help. These methods are derived from observational studies and remote research. The first one is empathy. This is talked about a lot in UX, but it's not really talked a lot about in other spaces. Empathy isn't always understanding the plight of others, but acknowledging that you don't fully understand and providing a space to listen, learn, and support. It's opening yourself up and really immersing yourself in that community and spending the time with them. Learning to kind of put down your privilege and understand that there are these problems that exist outside of you, even though they're not directly affecting you. The second one is to promote black creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders. This isn't about us as allies. This is about black lives needing to be valued and heard, highlighting their success, their history, their businesses, and their innovations. And the third one is to design to remove racism. Now for the world builders listening in, it's important that you design an ecosystem that removes racism and creates a space that is safe and has all these safety nets that create and preserve the safety, accessibility, and inclusion of that space. In order to fully realize that, you have to be immersed in the community that you're designing for. You have to collaborate with them and let them into the design process. If you're not out in the field, if you're not conducting interviews, walking in their shoes, working alongside the community, you aren't fulfilling your role as a designer. 
I'll share a link that my mentor provided with, to me that will help guide in removing racism from the designing process. The link will be in the podcast description. And as we reach the end of this episode, I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in. I hope that you're all safe out there while actively supporting the Black Lives Matters movement in any way that you can. And if this episode resonates with you, I would humbly request that you pass along any helpful information to help the Black Lives Matters movement. Additionally, in the description, I will provide some links that will hopefully help to support the Black Lives Matters movement. On a final note, because of timeframes and working to improve the quality of the podcast, the podcast is going to shift from a weekly publication to a bi-weekly publication. This will allow me to do more research, allow me to improve the quality of the audio, the edits, and so forth. And I thank you all for being patient. And again, I hope that you continue to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Thank you again, and stay safe. This has been The Red Mage.